This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 20th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Renee Duckworth about the influence of maternal effects on ecological communities. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for a daily news site. He's just back from the annual meeting of the AAAS in San Jose, California, and he'll tell us about some of the intriguing ideas scientists were tackling there. I'm Suzanne Bard. Hurricane Sandy, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, and the 2013 floods in Colorado were all devastating natural disasters. But they share something else in common that earlier catastrophes don't. That's the ability of people in the middle of the crisis to post about it in real time on social media. University of Colorado researchers have combed through patterns of social media responses to disasters and have come up with tips for how people can use the technology most effectively in emergencies. What are they, Dave? Well, there's three main tips that came out at the meeting. One is to be specific. Sometimes people will say in a tweet, it's very smoky here. And rescuers will be wondering, well, where is here? (laughs) And so one thing uh, people can do is take a photograph of the conditions to explicitly state uh, where they are and when what they are experiencing is happening. And what that does is it helps the people that are monitoring these crises via Twitter create maps and timescales which can improve, first of all, knowledge of what's happening, but also potentially feed into rescue operations. Now, are there times when keeping some of those details private is a better option? Yeah, there's actually times where you don't want to give all your information away. Say, for example, you're in the midst of a violent political conflict and you might be at risk, you certainly don't want to give away all of your personal details. So that's a very good point. Another suggestion is to be yourself. Early in the days of social media, people that were monitoring it tended to filter out tweets and posts that had a lot of explicit language in them. But now researchers are realizing that when people use swear words, especially that these words actually are a good giveaway that things are potentially very uh, traumatic on the ground and they may want to actually pay more attention to these tweets. 
than they do to other tweets. It can really be a signal of really how serious things are. That makes a lot of sense. And what else? And the final thing is that the people that are actually experiencing the disaster aren't the only people that need to tweet. People that are monitoring the disaster from afar can actually also play an important role in rescue efforts. They can potentially be a lot more level-headed about exactly what's going on, potentially help people filter out what's true from what's false, and even do things like helping volunteers make more detailed maps of what's going on or matching up people with their lost pets, as often happens in natural disasters. So a few good tips if you're ever unfortunate enough to be stuck in a natural disaster or any type of disaster and need to use social media or want to use social media, these are some things that you can do to be more effective and potentially help the people that are trying to help you. In our next story, biologists have a certain expectation about the basic makeup of life on Earth, that it uses RNA and DNA to replicate, that genes make proteins, and that life requires certain organic chemicals. But some scientists say life doesn't stop there, and there may be a shadow biosphere made up of organisms that we just aren't good at recognizing as life. Why not, Dave? Yeah, Suzanne, this was one of the more interesting sessions of this meeting, the idea that life may be hiding right under our nose, and we may not spot it because we're so used to looking for a particular type of life, a DNA or an RNA-based life, a type of life that needs water to survive, that we may be missing life not only on other planets, but actually right here on Earth. So water might not necessarily be required for life? That's right. People have talked about maybe organisms living in hydrocarbons instead of in water. For example, there are hydrocarbon seas on Saturn's moon Titan, and there may just be life forms that are capable of living in those environments. Also, another idea is, you know, one of the big challenges is, well, if we don't know what to look for, how are we going to find it? And one thing that seems to be common in systems with life, and of course, Earth is the only system that we know of, is that the environment seems to be out of whack a bit. So for example, all the oxygen on Earth should have been depleted a long time ago due to natural processes. But because there's a lot of living organisms on Earth that produce oxygen, we've retained oxygen in our environment. Another example is left-handed amino acids, which tend to be very prominent in life on Earth, but are not so prominent in nature otherwise. So by looking for systems out of equilibrium, by looking for things that you wouldn't expect in particular environments, that may be a giveaway that there is some sort of life there. And some people are actually looking at misfolded proteins for life? (laughs) Right. Uh, You know, we've really sort of don't have a great definition of what it means to be alive. For example, are viruses alive? There's been some debate about that. Well, viruses can replicate, but they really rely heavily on their host to do so. But there are some giant viruses on Earth that seem to have some properties of life. And that's sort of forcing us to expand our definition of, well, what exactly does it mean to be alive? And that we could apply to potentially life forms on other planets. Interesting stuff. In our final story today, unmanned drones have been in the news quite a bit lately, and not always in a good way. But along with satellites, they're proving an invaluable tool for archaeologists. How have these technologies helped them learn things about ancient civilizations that they couldn't have discovered otherwise, Dave? There are two places where 
archaeologists either don't look or have a very hard time looking when they're trying to dig up ancient civilizations. And those are vast deserts like the Sahara and the Amazon rainforest. With the Sahara, it's such a barren wasteland that you don't expect to find civilizations there, although there have been civilizations there. There's a culture known as the uh, Garamantes, which began building a network of cities, forts, and farmland in the Sahara south of Libya around 1000 BCE. But it's just so hard to do field work in this area that researchers really haven't spent a lot of time here. But now that we've got these new technologies like satellite imaging, that can really help scientists figure out if there is something there and what they can focus on. Very similarly with the Amazon, it's so dense there, it's really hard to pick out examples of villages. But there are large-scale earthworks there called geoglyphs, which some people might be familiar with. These are the sort of drawings on the grounds or etchings in the ground that you can see from very high up. And these can be picked up with things like LIDAR, which is a laser-based satellite mapping. This could be done in conjunction with drone flights. You could have actually drones fly into the Amazon forest, do mapping for you. And then again, archaeologists might be able to pick up on structures that they would have missed otherwise or focus on particular areas where it looks like there may have been human settlement, either because potentially there's some evidence of early farming, or potentially there's some species there that you wouldn't expect without some sort of human intervention. So they actually think that what people in the past planted might actually have impacted what's growing there today. That's right. If past cultures farmed the rainforest by cultivating helpful crops in specific places, their practices may have actually shaped which species grow where. And so you would see a different species distribution than you might normally expect. And it sounds like there's some urgency to these technologies too, Dave, with development threatening many of these sites. Right. We have development, which is major concern, human encroachment, uh, just regular uh, sort of erosion is also a problem. So a lot of scientists are very anxious to get these technologies in employed before a lot of this stuff disappears. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about new progress towards an AIDS vaccine. Also a story about why spider silk has been dethroned as nature's toughest fiber. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how Ukrainian science is faring due to all the conflict in that part of the world. Also a story about attempts to reduce research red tape. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Suzanne. David Grimm is the editor for our daily online news site. I'm Suzanne Bart. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Next, forest fires are a regular occurrence in the western United States. Burned areas are then recolonized by plants and animals. Renee Duckworth discusses how maternal effects influence the pattern of recolonization by bluebird species in this week's issue of Science. Across most taxa, females are responsible for providing offspring with the nutrients and other resources that they need in order to develop. And so, for example, in mammals, that occurs in utero. But for egg-laying species... Females must package all of those nutrients and other resources into the egg. And because females are responsible for that, they can have a huge impact on their offspring's phenotype. And that makes mothers a really potentially important link between current environmental conditions and offspring phenotype. And so that's why people have been very interested in what we call maternal effects on offspring. And have maternal effects been studied in a lot of other species? They've been studied very broadly across almost all taxa. There's a lot of studies in actually humans now that are showing that the environment that the embryo experiences 
during development can have long-term impacts on their health, on their behavior, and they've shown that this is due to differential exposure to either hormones or nutrients in utero. Let's turn to birds now. Tell me about the cycle of forest fires in Montana and the pattern of recolonization that you see in mountain and western bluebirds after the fires. Bluebirds are secondary cavity nesters, and historically, they depended on post-fire habitat. And post-fire habitat creates an area of openness. It clears out the understory, which is important because bluebirds need that open habitat to forage in. But the other key thing it does is it produces lots of dead trees, and that's a great place for nest cavities because bluebirds as secondary cavity nesters, unlike woodpeckers, they can't excavate their own nest cavity. And nest cavities are really limited in the environment. And so this limitation of nest cavities produces really intense competition among the different secondary cavity nesting species. Because post-fire habitat is successional, it's suitable for bluebirds to breed in for maybe 20 years, the forest is going to begin to regrow. And then if the species are going to survive, they have to recolonize a new area. And so what happens is when a patch of forest burns, the most dispersive species are able to find this new patch first because it provides a sort of isolated island of habitat. And in bluebirds, what we found is that mountain bluebirds are more dispersive of those two species, so they're more mobile, and they're actually able to colonize and find these new patches of habitat very early. But they're less aggressive and they're not as good competitors as western bluebirds are. So when western bluebirds show up a few years later, they're able to sort of rapidly outcompete them and take over. And within Western bluebirds, there's two different types. There's an aggressive type and a non-aggressive type. And the aggressive type are more dispersive, so they actually are the colonizers. They arrive first, but eventually the non-aggressive type takes over. And in your paper, you describe an experiment in which you manipulated nest cavity availability. This caused some females to have to defend their nest cavities more than others. How did all this aggressive behavior affect the eggs they eventually laid? Well, what we found was that females that were breeding on territories with a greater number of nest cavities actually put fewer androgens, and androgens are hormones like testosterone and some related hormones to testosterone. They put fewer of those into their eggs compared to females that were on territories that only had a single nest cavity. And this is really important because we know in Western bluebirds, non-aggressive sons, they're not very good competitors, so they often acquire territories by essentially breeding next to mom and dad, by butting off their parents' territory and staying close to home, whereas aggressive sons are well-equipped to go out and sort of find a territory on their own and compete on their own. And how did androgen levels affect the birth order of male offspring? Well, what we found was that in clutches that had higher androgen levels, sons were born earlier, so they were produced in the first laid eggs. And in clutches with lower androgen levels, sons were produced in the later eggs. And this is important because we had shown in some earlier work that depending on where sons were produced in the birth order, this strongly affected their aggressive behavior later in life. So those early-born sons ended up being more aggressive compared to later-born sons later in life. And what we found in this study that sort of solved the mystery of how this worked is that it appears that females weren't allocating hormones to a specific offspring, there wasn't much difference between the eggs of the clutch. Instead, it was a clutch level effect. So clutches that had sons early 
got a lot of androgen, the entire clutch, and the offspring that resulted from that clutch ended up being more aggressive later in life. And vice versa, clutches where sons were produced in the later positions had very little androgen allocated to them, and those offspring that were born from that clutch ended up being less aggressive later in life. And getting back to the bigger picture, what are your overall conclusions about how birth order and aggression level in these suns leads to the displacement of mountain bluebirds by western bluebirds in the fire cycle? Well, what we showed was that females from crowded populations where there's really high competition for nest cavities, when a female's in a population like that, she's more likely to produce aggressive suns that leave and colonize new populations. And so if you think about it in terms of this fire cycle, when you're at the very later stages of this post-fire forest and you have a very high-density population, but the habitat is also probably in its final stages of being even suitable, females are at this stage starting to produce aggressive suns that can go out and colonize new areas. And so they'll find a new habitat patch, which probably already have mountain bluebirds in it, and the whole cycle will start to repeat itself. And so we think that this maternal effect on offspring behavior is a really key adaptation in this species for basically allowing them to track the dynamics of competition with the other species that they compete with in this type of successional habitat. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Renee. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Renee Duckworth and her colleagues write about how maternal effects shape ecological communities in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.